0: The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes.
1: This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest.
0: And I'm Peter Terzakian. Welcome. Well, we certainly got a lot of feedback on our electric vehicle. In winter podcast last week,
1: yeah, we certainly did. I guess it was a couple of weeks ago. We enjoy, by the way, feedback, so please yeah. let us know what you think. That's part of why we do this. Yeah. Um, but what I did learn is there's many questions people had that we didn't get to. yeah, so I think we're gonna have to have a podcast in the future. A lot of people are asking questions around the battery life and how that would affect my ability to get to ten years <laughs> and the risk associated with that. And other questions about the economics. So anyway, keep those questions coming and we will have another electric car podcast.
0: Well, we're not going to talk about electric cars today. We're going to talk a little bit about technology, but we're going to talk about the commentary I put out, which we'll give you the link. It's been one year that we've gone from $60 oil to zero and back up to 60.
1: Yeah. Talking about cars. Talking about zero to cars. 60. Zero to 60 uh, and this back. Is, this is the oil price one, not something you'd want to live much more than once in your career. And if you could avoid it altogether, that would be good.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about it.
1: But first, before we get to that, Peter, I want to congratulate you. I don't know if all of our listeners know you were appointed to the federal government's Net Zero mm-hmm. Advisory Body. This is a group of 14 people from across Canada that are tasked with helping the government understand how they can achieve net zero by 2050. And that's part of that legislation that they Mm -hmm. brought out before christmas
0: yeah no i'm excited by it i mean it's a daunting task to think about how we're going to get to net zero it is an advisory body we advise minister wilkinson in the federal government and i think i'm going to learn a lot learn a lot about our country and the different views from across the country different industries it's not just an oil and gas thing it's pathways to net zero across all industries we haven't really met yet, but I think we'll have plenty to talk about on the podcast as I uh, work with these 13 other very capable people to see how we're going to achieve this goal within 30 years.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to learning uh, mm-hmm. what you guys work on because obviously that mm-hmm. really fascinates me. I did notice in the press release it said the committee will be a permanent resource. <laughs> I think
0: <laughs> nothing is permanent. I think we've learned in this world, but anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah. So maybe a long term appointment here for you, Peter. Wait and see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about your recent commentary. 60 to Zero Round Trip, Nine Oily Lessons from the Pandemic. That's the title.
0: Well, it's our one-year anniversary. It's one-year anniversary since the lockdowns. I've been working from home for one year now.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that. March 7th was the day that the Saudis declared mm-hmm. the oil price war.
0: Simultaneous to that whole lockdown.
1: Yeah, and it was kind of over the next week or so that everything changed in people's worlds, right? Really dramatically yeah. And the schools were locked down. I was just actually thinking that when the schools were locked down, I remember looking at this Dr. Dina Hinshaw and wondering <laughs> about her. And, uh, you know, a year later, she's just a well-known character in all of our households. Celebrity, we, yeah. We listen to her daily announcements and yeah. wonder what our new freedoms will be. If you told me a year later, we'd still be wondering about all these things. I might not have believed Mm -hmm. it back then. Well, it was
0: a tumultuous week in many ways. I think we were all in sort of that whole shock and awe about how a pandemic could radiate out of the other side of the world all the way around the world and affect us. But it happened so rapidly and it was simultaneous, as I said, with that Saudi oil price flooding of the market. The Russians effectively participating with them, pounding the price down at a time when consumption was about to collapse. So boy, it was a year ago. It almost seems like it was forever. But the column I wrote was to understand the consequences of how we went from $60 a barrel to zero and back to 60 in the span of one year. And it's really remarkable because to that point, it was somewhat of a thought experiment, a thought experiment of, well, what would happen if people were to stop using oil altogether and stop driving, stop flying, and the price went to zero, what would happen to the oil industry? What would be the consequences? It was actually kind of a legitimate question in the minds of those who were trying to say, well, if we get off oil really quickly, what is going to happen to the oil business? Well, we got a taste of it It with this almost global scale economic experiment where the price of oil did go to zero, where we did stay home where airplanes went off. And the consequences of that, or I should say the equivalence of that, we've done some calculations, right, in terms of how many effective cars went off the road and flights.
1: We basically worked it out at its worst point in April of 2020. We estimate in the range of a third of the vehicles were probably off the road. Mm -hmm. And then up to 95% of the airplanes, it really varied by jurisdiction, but there were jurisdictions where it was that bad in terms of How many planes were out of the skies?
0: So it's just like almost overnight, it was an experiment. You know, what would happen if a third of the vehicles were converted from oil to, say, electric vehicles? What would happen if overnight people stopped traveling, which they did? So it, I think, gave us a flavor for how difficult it is to get off oil because this monumental imposition upon 8 billion people on the planet all of a sudden being immobile. And actually, in hindsight, what I noted was it only took down our oil consumption by 20%. Yeah.
1: And that was just for that April time period. Yeah, Today, it's a lot less. It is shocking because I think a lot of people didn't recognize that light-duty vehicles are not the only thing that consume oil. And we still continued to want to eat and move goods around. And, and a lot of shipping still happened. So it really didn't have Such a drastic impact. Now, I mean, obviously it had a drastic impact, 20% reduction of, you know, what happened to the price and the supply chain. Mm -hmm. But that level of lockdown didn't reduce oil demand maybe as much as people might have thought.
0: No, it didn't. Nor did it reduce emissions really that much. It was down by, what, about 5%?
1: For the whole year, only expected to be down 6% Mm in 2020 compared to the previous year because we did see such a rebound in demand. By the summer, demand was only maybe down Mm -hmm. 6%, not 20%. It's
0: important to diarize this, Because then you and I on this podcast have talked for a long time and even before the podcast in our writings and things that the scale of our energy consumption, which is dominated by fossil fuels, is really almost unfathomable in its scale. You immobilize society. And even after that, it's only a 20% impact. It just gives us a sense of the scale of the challenges ahead we have.
1: Yeah. And the Paris Agreement would need to achieve a similar reduction by 2033, mm-hmm. ideally without a bunch of behavioral changes, but maybe some behavioral changes would be needed to achieve that goal, and we can yeah. talk
0: about that. Well, that leads into sort of the point number two, is our behavior did change overnight. We were told we couldn't move out of our homes, or we couldn't certainly fly, and that technology subbed in very quickly.
1: It's it really did. Feel- you know, I guess it had been ready for a long time, and people uh, weren't... Ready to adopt it, but it's not that video conferencing was new. It just wasn't widely used. You know, it was there. It didn't have to be developed. I think that was the advantage. It it didn't have
0: I was certainly surprised with the rapid rap hump in internet use and everybody having to stay home and watching streaming video for entertainment, conversing with each other through Zoom and
1: And video calls. Video
0: calls and what have you. And then we couldn't go to the stores, so we had online shopping and all the ordering. And, you know, yeah, there's some hiccups here and there, but it was absolutely remarkable how our behavior changed overnight.
1: Yeah, uh, and how, you know, the capitalism or entrepreneurialism, whatever yeah. you want to call it, like, adopted online shopping, it's crazy. I sit at my home office now, and I'm just blown away by all those trucks, all the delivery trucks, like it's just constant, Mm -hmm. you know, on our block, someone coming, going, stopping, dropping. It's just basically every five to six minutes, it seems like there's another truck there. Like it's just such a change. And I'm sure prior to COVID, if I'd noticed these things, it would have been very rare to see that or a lot more rare. And so, yeah, it's amazing how fast people adapted and companies adapted.
0: And I think this really sparked the tech rally because The event really showed how tech could change our lives so rapidly and how it could adapt. And that tech rally, which was dominantly sort of in the Amazon and the Apples and the Googles and what have you, and the companies broke through trillion-dollar market capitalizations. But that triggered a spillover effect because point number three is that the markets and investors started thinking, well, wow, if technology can do this to how we live, work, and play. What else can it do? And, oh, here's our energy systems. And so now we started to see the money start flowing and pouring into the whole clean tech space. The cost of capital went down as equities went up. Financing started to come in and started to come in far faster than any government stimulus package. And indeed, that's what you needed. We were sort of waiting for stimulus For green economy and all that kind of stuff, there was a lot of talk. And there was, of course, necessary stimulus to support all the people that were put out of work by the event. But the amount of money that started flowing into the climate tech, green tech, clean tech, whatever you call it, space, really started to accelerate.
1: It's kind of crazy what some of the equity prices have done Mm -hmm. over that time. I do want to talk a little bit, though, about behavior change before we go on, because the IEA, they have a scenario for getting to net zero by 2050. Most people don't know, but that sustainable development scenario that's often referred to is not a net zero 2050 scenario. It's actually a net zero 2070. That was done several years ago when that was the goal. Now Mm -hmm. the goal is 2050. And so they gave us some indications of where they're going to go with that. Apparently, the full scenario is going to come out here in a few months, but they actually talked about to get to the net zero 2050, we are going to need behavioral changes. Mm -hmm. And so they actually modeled in some behavior changes. Interestingly enough, they're not the ones from the pandemic, by and large. There's a little bit for working from home, but there are things like measures that could reduce transportation emissions by 20% would be replacing flights that are less than one hour with low-carbon alternatives. So maybe mm-hmm. you drive in a zero-emission electric car or a rail that's electric. Walking or cycling for all trips less than three kilometers. So get your runners on. You're not <laughs> going to be using your car if you're going three kilometers. And reducing your road speed by seven kilometers an hour. Not so great for the Tesla drivers. No. <laughs> They're going to have yeah. to restrain no. their their speed. But all of that could actually save 20% of the emissions from transportation, they estimate.
0: Well, I think that's the thing is that what we've learned as a consequence of this event is that technology can dramatically change the way we live, work, and play. Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody, including myself, wants to stay at home 24-7 in front of a screen. But I think out of this is going to come technologies that can give us behavioral change in ways that we haven't thought of. We talked about
1: it last week on the podcast, right? Space heating and space cooling, like mm-hmm. setting your thermometer a little differently to save a little bit of energy. If everyone and did cumulatively,
0: that. it makes a lot of difference. Makes a sure.
1: huge difference, right? Cycling and walking, mobile air conditioning. I think that one will be quite interesting. You see that in Japan, right? Instead of cooling off your whole house, you just wear like a cooling pack
0: on <laughs> your body. <laughs> All right. Well,
1: And they have things like hanging your laundry, You're Uh, probably going to start doing that pretty soon, Peter, by 2030. Yeah, no,
0: I hang my laundry outside. I've done that for years. It smells fresh. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm going to come
1: over and have to validate that. Absolutely.
0: But anyway, side note, cycling. If you're thinking about buying an electric bike, go to the cycling store. Because I went last week and they're flying off the shelves in February.
1: Any kind of bike or just the electric bikes.
0: Electric bikes and parking. Electric bikes.
1: Cycling is obviously on this list here, too. Cycling and walking is a much bigger wedge than working from home savings, according to the IEA's predictions. Well, it makes a lot
0: of sense if you can do it. I mean, it's obviously great to get out in the fresh air and great exercise. But when you drive, you're hauling around a couple of tons of weight with you. With an electric bike, it's obviously... Just a tiny sliver of the energy. 20 kilograms or something, whatever the the bike's weight, depending on what you ride. So these have big impacts, big impacts. And I think that some of the bike pathways and preferential things, whether it's in Europe or here or other places, they're not going away as a consequence of this.
1: Well, it all totals up to behavior changes they think when it all added up by 2030, not so long away, mm-hmm. could reduce global emissions by 5% from energy. Mm-hmm. And that's a big deal in that kind of time frame. There's very little we can do in that kind of time frame that would make that material of a change globally. Right. So that'll be a conversation. Are people going to make those changes or not? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to the next point on your, on
0: yeah, your write-up. Yeah, well, what we found Was that not all oil is the same? You know, there's a tendency for people to talk about oil as if it's a homogeneous commodity. You know, what we learned whether it's actually the crude barrels, of which there are many grades, much as there are many grades of coffee, light, dark, medium, the oil barrels are also light, medium, heavy, and oil sands and so forth. And that each one delivers different kinds of petroleum products. And when we had an event like this, Immobility, The observation is, well, not all oil is the same, that it had impacts on different types of oils and different regions produce different types of oil. So the effect on the oil industry at large was certainly not uniform.
1: No, for sure. And I'm just looking at some data from the IEA. In the worst month, April, everything was hit pretty hard, but right away diesel bounced back because a lot of diesel is used for trucking trucking, and we're moving all sorts of things and buying things. Nothing stopped that way, right? People still eat. Yeah. And then the Carowind jet, Although still hit hard, a lot of it came back, Mm -hmm. you know, after the worst month. And of course, gasoline demand came back to some extent. But in general, when it comes to the overall economy, a lot of oil is used, not to do with light duty transportation. That's kind of what this shows. I think
0: that's what it shows for sure. And diesels made mostly from the heavier oils.
1: Yeah, you're right. Or the heavier fractions of the oils, and the Mm -hmm. heavy oils have more of it.
0: We also learned that, as I like to say, Darwin was right. Darwin in the corporate ecosystem, where the weak companies. Died off, and the strong got stronger. I mean, we saw that in the oil business. We saw companies that have high cost, overlevered. They went into bankruptcy, and then we saw a lot of consolidation coming together. So, you know, the lesson here is an extension, a rapid extension of what we were already seeing in the industry pre-pandemic. Was the need to lower costs, consolidate, get economies of scale. And just become stronger in an environment where it's getting more and more competitive and demand potentially was leveling off. So in many ways, the pandemic has served as a catalyst, an accelerant for the industry to be able to withstand stronger shocks in the future by getting rid of the weak and making the strong stronger.
1: And I think that theme, even though we have $60 oil again, I think as we saw a couple of weeks ago with Seven Generations and ARC resources, I think that theme will continue Because these companies now are not really so focused on growing their production, but growing their cash flow. Mm -hmm. And if you're not going to grow your production, how are you going to grow your cash flow? It's going to be more efficient. And I think we continue to see consolidation, which ultimately will make the industry stronger Mm -hmm. and more resilient to price shocks.
0: And and speaking of resiliency, the other thing we saw was that Alberta's oil sands survived it. In fact, they performed better and rebounded faster than their American counterparts in the Tight oil areas.
1: And this year, the oil sands, if prices stay where they are today, they're going to generate a lot of cash flow. I think the problem with the oil sands is they have high operating costs. So people say, oh, they're the high cost barrel. And they are. And you saw that when the prices dropped. Some of the oil sands producers were the first ones to announce they were shutting in because Mm -hmm. every barrel costs more on average in general than maybe a conventional oil barrel. But once they are back up and running and the price is above their operating costs, they're much more resilient because they don't decline. And so they were able to come back. In fact, production in Alberta is now higher than it was before COVID, where Mm -hmm. if you look at the Americans, they've lost 2 million barrels a day of production. I I
0: think those operating costs through consolidation are going to come down, I think through efficiency gains, because of the realization that the industry has to withstand more of these types of shocks potentially in the future. So the operating costs are not as high as people think they are, and they certainly weren't the ones, the companies within the global oil and gas ecosystem that were uh, picked off first.
1: No, they definitely fared better. If you look at the oil sands companies today, because they didn't lose production. They don't lose their production when they stop investing capital.
0: So the price signals worked. You know, when the price went, sort of precipitously falling as a consequence, first of all, from the Saudi oil price war, then followed by the demand drop-off due to the pandemic. On that way from 60 to zero, the rigs went home. And then, as you pointed out earlier, the production started to get shut in. The supply started to contract to meet demand. Of course, there was a lot put into storage, and a temporary glut was created. Now the price starts coming back, and there's another year of investment that's been weak. And so the question that I had was, is that price signal, $60 now, strong enough to catalyze drilling again and growth? What do you think? Doesn't
1: seem loud enough yet. I mean, you wrote that, (laughs) but I agree with it. Because what we're seeing is that in general, companies continue to give guidance that they're going to stick with their plans and uh, not grow and give more money back to shareholders. And in some cases, they have debt that they want to pay off. If prices stay where they are, there's going to be a significant amount of cash flow, so we will see. But that seems to be the plan right now.
0: There's been a lot of pressure even before the pandemic for the companies to grow their profitability and not their top-line output. And as the prices come back, they're largely sticking to that. Yep. And so so I don't expect Western oil and gas companies, they call it free market, to grow their production. Whereas, I think on, was it last week's show or a couple of shows ago, we talked about the Russians got their big oil fields up in the Siberia that they're spending hundreds of billions of dollars on to fill in. Yeah, eventually, eventually. if they do the whole scale. Yeah.
1: Yeah. no, I think they will grow. And obviously, I think OPEC would like to gain more market share. I mean, that was the whole thing a Mm -hmm. year ago last spring is because they wanted more market share. I'm not sure that intention has gone away. But that gets to your next point, which is OPEC is still really relevant and they pull the strings. And here we are on March 4th. We just learned that OPEC has decided that they are going to continue with their cuts. Mm. Everyone gives a collective sigh of relief. So they still have a big role to play here in terms of where prices are.
0: My observation is, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, exactly a year ago, the Saudis exerted their muscle by flooding the market. Then they realized they had to constrain the market with their OPEC peers. And now they're continuing to constrain it. So, I mean, they control the market. Like, this is not a free market mechanism. The prices of oil are set by decisions made on the other side of the world. And that's really important when thinking about energy transition because price at the wellhead eventually trickles to price at the pump and what consumers pay. And the control of that price is in the hands of people that are on the other side of the world. Price is, that have
1: inconsistent strategies that, uh, at the time, right? We yeah. saw in 2015 and yeah. 2020, they flooded the market. Today, they're doing cuts that are really helping right. prop up the price right. and helping a lot of Western oil producers by doing that.
0: Great. But the propensity to, say, switch from a gasoline vehicle to an electric vehicle does depend upon what the price of gasoline is. The lower the price of gasoline, the less incentive consumers have to switch to an electric version. Now, as the price of gasoline goes up, there's increasing propensity to want to potentially switch. So my point is is that this organization that's been around since the 1970s does control where the price is and therefore, in effect, can control the rate of substitution.
1: I guess they can, right? If they set the price too high, people are talking about the $100 oil scenario now. You yeah. hear that sometimes. That would create a lot of acceleration, potentially, of the move to electric vehicles. It's because big, the. But I, don't, I don't
0: believe they will let it go to $100 a barrel because they know that. This is an optimization exercise to try and get as much revenue out of a barrel of oil without substitution.
1: And at the same time, without getting the other oil producers to start taking their market share, it's kind of a delicate balance to find that right number.
0: It is, but I think they're very shrewd in the way that they're going to do that.
1: All right, the last one, we like clean air and water.
0: Well, the world paused and especially in highly polluted cities, the citizens for the first time saw what it was like to have clean blue skies and clean water. And I think that this is an influence. I mean, even in Western cities, In some places, the water completely cleared up the skies without contrails and things like that. And I think it definitely made a psychological impact on people. And I think that that is serving to harden the resolve to find clean energy solutions going forward.
1: Yeah, we had that past podcast where we talked about those memes in India where Mm -hmm. it started with legitimate posts that someone could actually see a mountain because the smog had gone away. And then it turned into people posting they could see cities that were hundreds of kilometers away. But I think people are more in tune with nature now. Like we have a slower lifestyle and I notice I'm spending way more time outside. I'm noticing way more about nature than I Mm -hmm. used to. And I think people maybe over the last year have a different appreciation of nature.
0: I think they do. And I think that if we look at the list of nine things here, there's all sorts of really interesting dynamics. We've got technology, we've got the ability to manipulate markets in the incumbent, and then we have the realization of environmental and social values all wrapped together. So it's definitely impacted the trajectory of where we're going over the course of the next 10 years. I would argue the combination of technology, capital, and sort of realization of environmental and social values is on balance going to accelerate change going forward.
1: So there's some validity to the everything's different now Okay, with that, we'll put a link to the article so you can link through to it. Thanks for joining our podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.